Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm very happy to be here today. Thank you for taking time out of your schedules to come. Uh, my talk is on ChatGPT, um, and a comparison of ChatGPT with Aquinas' understanding of human thought and speech. Um, so before I start, who has used ChatGPT? Just out of curiosity. Okay, who uses it regularly? Okay, great. <laughs> One big hand in the back. Okay, wonderful. So, um, so I look forward to, we, we've saved some time for Q&A, and you know, I'm going to kind of set out uh, what Thomas thinks about human speech. We're going to talk about what ChatGPT does when it speaks. And I'd love to hear from you at the very end uh, as well, just sort of your thoughts on it, because it is such a new, um, a new technology, right? Um, that we're still trying to make sense of in a lot of ways. Okay. In May of 1997, world chess champion Garry Kasparov traveled to New York City play a six-game match with Deep Blue, a supercomputer developed by IBM. This was their second meeting. Kasparov, whom some considered the best chess player of all time, had won handily against Deep Blue in a tournament in Philadelphia just the year prior, despite giving up the first game. But he had proposed a rematch, and Deep Blue's programmers had been hard at work. It had a new generation of hardware, and now it was twice as fast as it had been. Deep Blue could search 200 million chess positions per second and could search to a depth of six to eight pairs of moves. Kasparov became, according to his own words, the man in the proverbial man versus machine competition. In New York, Kasparov won the first game, Deep Blue the second, and the next three games ended in a draw. Going into the sixth game, Kasparov was under tremendous stress, and onlookers reported that he didn't, feel, he didn't appear prepared for the game. He resigned the sixth game after 19 moves, throwing up his hands and walking away from the table. And Deep Blue became the first computer program to defeat a world champion in chess, um, in a chess matched under tournament regulations. People watching around the world couldn't believe what they had seen, and the story exploded across the media. Even I, as a child at this time, remember these pictures of Kasparov with his face in his hands, kind of reckoning with the fact that he'd been beaten by a machine. The human brain had lost the match that Newsweek called the brain's last stand. It's very dramatic. In a TED Talk from 2017, Kasparov recalls his first impression of playing against Deep Blue. I sat down, he said, and I immediately sensed something new, something unsettling. The same could be said today for anyone who has interacted with ChatGPT. There's something new and unsettling about its facility with human conversation. It can respond to prompts in a way no artificial intelligence before it did. It writes poems, essays, computer code. There is an eerie similarity between the speech of ChatGPT and the speech of a human person. And the potential for newer, faster, more sophisticated models of ChatGPT is also unsettling. Where is this technology going? Will it eventually outpace human speech and human intelligence? Is the rise of ChatGPT 
another version of the brain's last stand. And we know, of course, how uh, ChatGPT has become uh, such a hot topic, especially in education. Fortunately, we have a theologian and philosopher on hand, Thomas Aquinas, who can help us understand human intelligence, and particularly the expression of human intelligence called speech. Though he wrote in the 13th century, his insights have much to offer us as we grapple with this new technology. So in this talk, I will compare the speech of ChatGPT with human speech as Aquinas sees it. I'll show that while ChatGPT output resembles human speech, the process by which it generates text is very different in important ways from the process of human articulation. And my hope is that this basic comparison will allow us to further ponder the role of ChatGPT in human life, especially at the university. So first, a look into how ChatGPT works. This is not my area of specialty. Um, sometimes I even don't know how to put the credit card chip in the machine at the coffee place. Um, but I've done a lot of work to try to sort of piece out how ChatGPT works, and here's my best shot. <laughs> ChatGPT is a large language model chatbot developed by the company OpenAI. It is the fastest growing consumer application in human history. The first iteration of ChatGPT, GPT-1, was announced in 2018, just five years ago. By February of this year, 2023, GPT had 100 million monthly users. The website generated 1.6 billion visits in June of this year. Science educator Kyle Hill claims that ChatGPT is now outputting something like everything humans have ever printed since the Gutenberg Press every two weeks. Process on the chatbot continues at breakneck pace. It now operates in over 50 languages. Earlier this year, it passed the Turing test, a test that measures natural language comprehension. In other words, can you talk like a human being? It was the second um, artificial intelligence to do so. Uh, Google's Lambda was first. GPT-4, which is available for purchase right now, can pass almost every major standardized test with flying colors. The bar exam, the SAT, the GRE. And even as I put together this talk, it was difficult to keep up with the developments. Yesterday, the Wall Street Journal reported that users can now have a spoken conversation with ChatGPT ask it a question and it will respond, and you can pick from five different, very human-sounding voices. Despite the breakneck progress of ChatGPT, it is possible to look at the basics of how it works. Let's now dive into how exactly this chatbot receives a prompt from a user and then generates a response. Welcome, please come in. GPT stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. So I'll just go through each of these words briefly. Generative, because ChatGPT belongs to a class of artificial intelligence called generative AI, which uses models or algorithms to produce new output based on previously digested material. Pre-trained, because ChatGPT has been trained on massive amounts of data, 570 gigabytes of data to be exact, consisting of internet text and digitized books, among other things. This amounts to several billion web pages with trillions of words of text and over 500 million digitized books. Its knowledge cutoff right now is, I think, September of 2021. This data is what ChatGPT draws from to produce the words that best respond to the prompt you give it. GPT's training has also been fine-tuned by humans, a process called alignment, which ensures that the AI neural network 
aligns with certain human criteria and values. GPT has been trained on how well word selection aligns with the values of helpfulness, truthfulness, and harmlessness. This means that human feedback has reinforced certain connections in ChatGPT's neural network that align with these criteria. This is how you avoid getting, for example, a racist chatbot or something like that. T, transformer, refers to attention transformer, which is the neural network architecture ChatGPT uses to process data. Neural networks themselves are not new. They have long been used to predict the next words in a sequence with varying degrees of success, but ChatGPT's transformer is capable of self-attention, meaning that the bot can process every word in a sentence at once, select the most relevant words, and consider them in relation to all the other words in the sentence. It does this by tokenizing words, encoding them as numerical representations for the neural network to process. The tokens are related to one another in an enormous matrix. In GPT-3's case, it was trained on 500 billion tokens, and it operates with 175 billion parameters. We might think of this as a very sophisticated, multidimensional concept map. Kyle Hill says that ChatGPT can represent the relationship between words not in two-dimensional space or three-dimensional space, but in 12,000-dimensional space. Finally, I should note that there's an element of randomness programmed into GPT's responses. This is called temperature. And this ensures that the chatbot doesn't respond to the same prompt the same way every time. This is another feature that makes it seem authentically human, that element of randomness. I wanted to just show one example of what ChatGPT can do. And I realize many of you have worked with it a lot, but for some of you, this may be new. This is from Ari Schulman at the New Atlantis. Um, he input this text where he's asking ChatGPT to explain to him why the person he's talking to said that he was beating up his brother. So my friend, colon, excellent. I am beating up with my brother in a little bit, but we'll call you on the ride back. And he says, I received the following text message in an exchange. I'm confused. What's going on? ChatGPT recognizes the error in the text message and explains it to him. He says, it appears there might be a typo in your friend's message that is causing confusion. It seems like they meant to say meeting up instead of beating up. Here is a clearer interpretation of your friend's message. And then ChatGPT gives the clear interpretation and interprets that interpretation. Okay, so it's very sophisticated. To sum up this section, text input from humans becomes numbers. Those numbers prompt ChatGPT to generate the most likely numbers that would come next in that sequence with some control for values and randomness. Then those generated numbers are decoded into words for the human reader. This highly complex process surpasses the capability of earlier chatbots and resembles natural human language to a greater extent than other generative AI systems. This is why ChatGPT passed the Turing test, and it's why many people say that the chatbot seems to understand what it's saying. But does ChatGPT really understand, grasp, comprehend the words it produces? Many say no. Ian Bogost of The Atlantic says ChatGPT lacks the ability to truly understand the complexity of human language and conversation. And Harry Guinness at Zapier puts it this way. He says, understanding and comprehending are simply the most useful words we have for describing how AIs operate. GPT doesn't truly understand English. I think Thomas Aquinas would agree with this. 
So let's now turn to his thought. How do we speak according to Aquinas? How did I write this talk? How do I find the words to tell someone I love them? How did my five-year-old come up with two very silly hypothetical instruments to add to an orchestra, a blogo and a fukistrophe? And why did he chase me around the house, making the sounds he thought would come from such instruments? It is probably no surprise to you that Thomas approaches this question differently than today's disciplines of neuroscience or educational psychology. It's not the goal of my presentation to explain how Thomas's account agrees or doesn't with these contemporary disciplines, although this is a valuable question and I can provide some resources to pursue it at the end of this talk. Here, I'll simply outline Aquinas's vision of where human speech comes from. This idea is very important to his theological and philosophical work, and he draws his thoughts on human speech from two sources. The first is Greek philosophy, specifically Aristotle. Thomas uh, wrote commentaries on Aristotle's On the Soul and his On Interpretation. And these are important sources for Aquinas because they give a scientific account, in the ancient sense of the word, of the human mind and how speech is formed and why. The second of these sources is Christian tradition, especially the claim that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is the Word of God. In Greek, this is logos. So, Quick review of uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They exist in a relationship of eternal love. Um, and the Son is the Word of God. One of the most important places Aquinas considers the Word is the Gospel of John, specifically John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, which is called the Johannine Prologue. If you were a student in Aquinas' class at the University of Paris in the 1270s, you would have spent 11 days on just these verses. Two phrases from the Johannine Prologue are important for our purposes today. The first one is just the, the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Aquinas understood this to refer to the Word's divinity and eternal existence with God the Father. The second comes from verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This refers to the incarnation of Jesus Christ an event in which the second person of the Trinity, the Word, took on a human nature and became fully human, in addition to being fully God. Some of Thomas's richest reflections on human speech come from his interpretation of the Johannine Prologue, and I will work mostly from this text today. But I want to point out that Thomas is not simply making theological claims as he comments on John's Gospel. He's drawing on Aristotelian tradition, and to a certain degree, making sense of what he's reading in scripture through Aristotle's account of human cognition. In this regard, what he's doing isn't exactly theological. These sources that he's drawing from are not exactly theological. So, speech according to Aquinas. Before we dive into Aquinas' teaching, I think it's worth asking how you would define the word, word. Perhaps we'd come up with something like this. Uh, a word is something you say or write to express what you think. Words sometimes express reality, and they sometimes don't. My two-year-old son, George, was in the garage the other day uh, with a broom. I said, what are you doing, George? He said, I'm raking leaves with my shovel. George was wrong. <laughs> and even if a word seems accurate to the speaker, it can sometimes be taken in the wrong way by the hearer. For example, when my five-year-old looked at me and said, Mom, your dissertation is garbage. Offensive, maybe, but he really liked garbage trucks and garbage, so maybe not. 
Turning now to Thomas, we'll see that nothing he says necessarily disagrees with our basic definition of word, but for him, our definition is incomplete. There's more to be said, as it were. Okay, what is the spoken word? The word is an expression of a concept. Aquinas takes from Aristotle the idea that spoken words express what is going on in our minds. Specifically, they express a concept. Spoken words consist of the sound of the word and the signification of that sound. Here's Aquinas' commentary on Aristotle's uh, perihermeneus, or on interpretation. He says, according to the philosopher, vocal sounds signifies the concept of the intellect. And I should add that anytime you see the philosopher, he's talking about Aristotle. The vocal sound, which has no signification, cannot be called a word. Wherefore, the exterior vocal sound is called a word from the fact that it signifies the interior concept of the mind. Therefore, it follows that, first and chiefly, the interior concept of the mind is called a word. Secondarily, the vocal sound itself, signifying the interior concept, is so called. A couple important things come to light here. First, spoken words are called words only if they signify concepts in the human intellect. What this means is that random sounds are properly words for Thomas. So no matter how loud the screaming goats scream, they will never truly reproduce the words to Whitney Houston's ballad, I Will Always Love You. For the sound of a goat, unlike the sounds of a human, do not express an inner concept and thus have no signification. Second, it is the concept or interior word that is primarily and properly called word. In Latin, word is verbum, in Greek, as we saw, it's logos. In an Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, the logos refers to the appeal to reason and discourse, how speech is organized, but, and this is key, it also refers to the eternal organizing principle of the cosmos, the reason behind why anything exists at all and why things exist in the way they do. And from this perspective, it makes sense that the spoken word cannot be considered the primary word. To give primacy to the spoken word, rather than concepts for Aquinas or Aristotle, would be tantamount to saying that created things are superior to their creator. And we can see, too, in a certain natural sense, that the words we say exist first as the things we mean to say. Written words are even further from being words properly speaking, according to Thomas. Um, he says... The signification, oops, not yet, sorry. He says the signification of vocal sounds, which is immediate to the concepts of the intellect, uh, or excuse me, he distinguishes the signification of vocal sounds immediate to the concepts of the intellect from the signification of written signs, which are more remote. So written words or letters are the sign of a sign, according to Aristotle. I read cat on the page. I think about the word cat. And that is a, a sign of a concept of cat that I have in my mind. Okay. Um, and according to Aristotle, even the study of the letter belongs to grammar, not to logic. So to sum up this first part, a written word is a, it signifies a spoken word. A spoken word is called a word because it signifies a concept in the intellect. And this concept is called an interior word by Aristotle and Aquinas. This exists in the human intellect prior to the spoken word, and this is what they claim is the primary meaning of word or logos. 
So now we need to explore what's a concept, how are concepts generated. Okay. Um, and to understand this, we need to examine Thomas's account of human cognition. That is, how we come to know things and how we then express what we know. If you've taken an intro to philosophy class, you may have come across this. Okay, this is a pretty classical account of Aristotelian Thomistic uh, cognition. The concept or interior word comes about through the operation of the intellect. This is an important point that distinguishes Aquinas from many contemporary neuroscientists and philosophers, because both Aristotle and Aquinas argue that the human person has a rational soul, which is immaterial. Now let's pause for a second, think about the immaterial soul. This isn't Descartes' idea of a soul, a ghost in the machine, separable from the body and its functions. The soul is the form of the body or the animated principle of the body for Aquinas. We call this hylomorphism. It's not a part of the body. It's not a material that intervenes in bodily processes. And it's not even a principle of movement that competes with neurological, biological, chemical, or other features of movement in the human body. For Aristotle and Aquinas to say that the human person has a soul is essentially the same thing as to say that the human person is alive. The intellect is the passive power of the soul, and this power allows us to know the truth. The immateriality of the intellect is important because this is what allows me to engage in discursive reason, to think abstractly about things like love and justice, and to grasp forms. So I can think about triangles, not just this or that particular triangle, right? Um, if the intellect re relied only on material processes, I couldn't do something like this. And Aquinas says that it's through the immateriality of the intellect that we have the power of understanding. So specifically what happens is this. Don't tell Aquinas 101 I stole there. They were just so good. I receive information from the world, external senses, internal senses, phantasms, and these things are impressed upon my intellect as the form or species of a thing. For example, there could be a specific dog running around in front of me in the park. The particular attributes of that dog, the color of the fur, the sound of the bark, the length of the tail, come to me through the five senses. But my intellect receives the impression of dogness, the form or species of a dog. This is why I can recognize many kinds of dogs, right? I, I'm not just bound to the particulars, but I can think about universals. I then move to understand that this is a dog. I formulate an interior word or concept of a dog in my intellect. That's a dog. This is different than the form of a dog that I've received because my intellect receives that passively. But the concept indicates that my intellect is acting, moving to understand what has been impressed upon it. Then I want to talk about the dog. This is where the exterior word comes in, a kind of manifestation of my interior word. I can turn to the person I'm with and say something like, look at that cute dog. And here in this illustration, we have something similar, except here it's a bird, right? So we see bird from the sense data, bird goes into the intellect, we receive the form of the bird, and then we want to sort of start forming a concept of the bird. Aquinas says this about the intellect in his commentary on John. He says, now there are three things in our intellect, the intellectual power itself, the species or form of the thing understood, and thirdly, the very activity of the intellect, which is to understand. The one who understands forms an interior word when understanding. 
And let's recall that all of this for Aquinas takes place immaterially. That is, the intellectual power, the form of the thing understood, and the act of understanding that generates the concept do not rely on brain matter. In a way, it's kind of an imitation of God's own ability to create from nothing, because we don't rely on previous substances or stimuli to do the work of generating something new. Okay, so let's review. These are the takeaways. And now we're going to get to the so what, okay? Um, first, the important distinctions between the AI chat, bot, chat, GPT, and human words. Human speech begins in the intellect at a level that transcends the material world, including the activity of the brain. A concept or interior word formed in the intellect indicates that I understand something. This concept gives meaning to the words I speak or write. It is only in this final step, the spoken and written word, that human speech becomes anything like what ChatGPT produces. ChatGPT speech, on the other hand, begins with a prompt, which initiates a sequence of encoding, processing, and decoding, roughly speaking. So yes, it's a generative AI, but it's not creative like the human intellect. As Kyle Hill has said, if you're, if you're not asking the model a question, nothing is going on inside. ChatGPT does also not form concepts, and so from an Aristotelian Thomistic perspective, it does not understand the words it produces. We can only say things like ChatGPT reasons or understands analogically. Now, let's consider some epistemological and ethical issues this investigation brings up, especially as it relates to academic life. In other words, we take Aquinas' account of human speech seriously. What does that mean for our use of ChatGPT as we endeavor to learn things and to produce things in an academic environment? I came up with three questions, and I'll elaborate on these a little bit, and then I'd love to hear um, from people in the Q&A about these as well. First, is using ChatGPT intellectually dishonest? Here's what the Brown University Academic Code says. Academic achievement is ordinarily evaluated on the basis of work that a student produces independently. Students who submit academic work that uses others' ideas, words, research, or images without proper attribution and documentation are in violation of the academic code. The question of whether ChatGPT is plagiarism, or using ChatGPT as plagiarism, is a hot topic, and I don't pretend to have a definitive answer to this question. But let's consider the act of submitting another's work as your own, or maybe even slightly rewording another's work and passing it off as your own. As a student, and even admittedly as a professor, it is extremely tempting to draw on text produced by a chatbot, especially for the more cursory or uninteresting aspects of a paper. I'm no specialist in AI, and I have to admit that producing the chat GPT portion of this paper was excruciating. Wouldn't it be faster if I could ask a bot to give me the basics of chat GPT so that I could move on to the really important stuff, like Thomas? Am I really missing something? if I skip those hours of scrolling through articles and watching YouTube videos at 1.5 speed so I can craft a thousand of my very own words about a subject everyone is already talking about? We could ask similar questions about a lot of college paper topics. Papers produced in undergraduate core courses are hardly original or groundbreaking most of the time. Sorry if anyone's insulted. And we know that part of the academic life is learning how to move efficiently through tremendous amounts of information and synthesize it. Many claim that ChatGPT is a good tool for this. Based on Thomas's account of speech, however, copying or even slightly rewording the chatbot's output 
prevents us from going through the process of forming concepts. which And the concepts are the thing that signal to us that understanding has taken place. The intellect is working. So anytime I adopt the text from a chatbot, I run the risk of not really understanding the words I'm using. And isn't this ultimately what intellectual dishonesty is? The theft of someone else's thinking, the pillaging of their hard-fought work to understand. Aha, but wait, you might say. ChatGPT doesn't have concepts. You just said that. So it isn't really intellectually dishonest to use it, because the text of a chatbot isn't really a, a work, at least not in the same way a Britannica article or a document on Course Hero is the work of the author. Let's discuss this in the Q&A. I don't have all the answers, but look at this. We're using Aristotelian Thomistic language to talk about ChatGPT, and my evil plan is working. Second question, what happens to me when I use ChatGPT to avoid doing the work of understanding? Did you know that Thomas dedicates a question of the Summa Theologiae to the vices opposed to understanding? In other words, if you're not doing the work of understanding and you're kind of failing to do the work of understanding, what are you doing? One of these is called blindness of mind, and this is how he describes it. He says, bodily blindness is the absence of sight. Blindness of mind is the absence of the principle of intellectual sight. One of the principles of intellectual sight is an intelligible principle, he says, through which a man understands other things. Aquinas doesn't say it here exactly, but that sounds a lot, like, a lot to me like the activity of the intellect, which is to understand. This kind of mental blindness comes about in two ways. Sometimes it happens because we deliberately turn away from understanding. We will not to understand. Other times it happens because the mind is, quote, busier with the things which it loves more, quote, than understanding. When I think about my temptation to use ChatGPT for parts of this presentation, I can detect these two causes of mental blindness. I don't want to know this much about AI. I don't want to understand it at this level, especially when there are so, much, so many better things to do, like read medieval biblical interpretation, or wait for season six of The Crown, or sleep. A final ethical question. What about using ChatGPT for the writing process? For example, generating a bibliography. I'm not pretending that the chatbot's text is expressing my own understanding. I'm just using it as a tool for further research. I can only respond to this with an anecdote. I attended the University of Notre Dame for my undergraduate degree and briefly flirted with the idea of becoming an architecture major. The program was five years long and students spent the first three years of the program drawing and drafting entirely by hand. It was only after they returned from a year of studying classical architecture in Rome that they were trained on computer software. Why spend three years avoiding the computer? Because to be an excellent architect requires a sophisticated understanding of three-dimensional structures like buildings, that the struggle to understand is important for possessing. Working with pen and pencil, measuring by hand, producing a three-dimensional image on a two-dimensional surface gives someone a much deeper grasp of the subject. Why rely on neural, the neural network of a bot when we will become better scholars by doing our own research, by strengthening the neurological connections that conduce to research in our own brain? Maybe the better question is not whether ChatGPT should be used as a tool, but when it is appropriate to use it as a tool, and further, what skills are so essential to our work that we should not surrender them to artificial intelligence? What do you think is an acceptable level of engagement with artificial intelligence in your field of study? We have to take one final step 
in order to fully understand Aquinas on human speech. And this step distinguishes him from Aristotle and places him firmly in Christian territory. For Aquinas, human speech is patterned after the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is the exemplar or foundation or the cause of the human ability to generate interior words in the intellect at all. But there are two important differences between the word that John speaks about in his prologue and our interior words. Aquinas talks about these in his commentary on John. First, the formation of a concept is not immediate or obvious to us like it is to the word. In other words, we don't immediately understand everything presented to our intellect. Even when it comes to things like talking about rocks, Aquinas says, I must arrive at these concepts by discursive reason. And this is a difficult process. This is what he says in the commentary on John. So long as the intellect and reasoning casts about this way and that, the formation of the concept is not yet complete. It is only when it has conceived the notion of the thing perfectly that for the first time it has the notion of the complete thing and a word. The word of God does not form concepts this way, but contains all things perfectly in himself. The word has a perfect notion of everything existing as the creator of all things. Second, our words are imperfect, but the divine word is perfect. Aquinas has this to say, since we cannot express all our conceptions in one word, we must form many imperfect words through which we separately express all that is in our knowledge. But it is not that way with God, for since he understands both himself and everything else through his essence by one act, the single divine word is expressive of all that is in God, not only the persons, and be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also of creatures. In this section of the commentary on John, Aquinas is mostly concerned with demonstrating what John means by capital W, word. But the way he brings human speech in as a contrast, I think, is instructive for our purposes. Speech is hard. In the Summa, Thomas says there is a twofold obstacle to speech. The first is our will. We have to want to say something. The second is the body, the actual formation of the words. But here in the commentary on John, Aquinas is providing further insight into the difficulty of speaking. Our reasoning casts about this way and that, forming incomplete, imperfect words, and still we may not fully communicate what we understand. Or perhaps it's even that we don't yet really understand it. Have you ever found yourself saying, I know what I want to say, I'm just not exactly sure how to describe it. This signifies an incomplete understanding of something. Your interior word is imperfect. And Aquinas understood this. He understood the fraught nature of human speech, the vulnerability of trying to talk about things we don't perfectly understand, the risk of making errors, of being misinterpreted. Aquinas' own biographers report that when he was writing something, he would often be in tears and would press his head against the tabernacle, which is this sacred place in a church where Catholics believe Jesus' body and blood are present. And he would, he would press his head against this tabernacle and plead for understanding. This is a picture of my son's uh, summer handwriting practice. Um, he didn't want to do summer handwriting practice, so instead he decided to write everything in Chinese. I think this is a great example of the struggle of speech. In, to some level, even in our graduate courses, in, in our undergraduate courses, we are still dealing with this phenomenon. I want to say it, and I can't, and I don't know how yet. 
But there is some good news in all this. The human struggle to speak can be a way to encounter God. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is that second important passage from the Johannine prologue that refers to the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity, the word of the Father, entered human life and language in the incarnation. Christ brought about salvation by such a foolish and inefficient process that St. Paul called it the foolishness of speech or the foolishness of what was preached. This is an image of Jesus um, speaking uh, or reading from the Gospel of Isaiah in a Jewish synagogue. Can you imagine being the Word of God, and, and you know, according to um, you know Christian tradition, having knowledge of everything, and condescending to walk into a place of worship and open a book and read somebody else's words about you? The struggle to give birth to our thoughts can be a participation in the mystery of the incarnation, our own kind of foolishness of speech. When we write or talk, we're not just floundering around searching for the right words under the judgmental gaze of an omniscient God. We're walking the path that the word made flesh has walked before us. And this seemingly foolish inefficiency, this roundabout way of salvation and articulation is the greatest expression of divine love. So in that, there's an invitation to imitate Christ by wasting time searching for and articulating the truth. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.